0: church in our worship of the lord this morning we come now to the preaching of the word of god so if you had your bibles this morning i would invite you to turn to matthew 28 matthew 28 and before we read that text together we're going to call out to the lord we're going to ask for god's blessing this morning upon god's word so let's pray together Father we come again in Jesus' name And we come to honor you you are the lord our god We come to bow before you to proclaim your glory we come to sit at your feet this morning Lord Jesus you are our king And we gladly proclaim that as your church you're our king lord and our desire is to submit to you, to submit to your teaching. and We pray, Lord, that you would create that heart within us this morning, renew it within us this morning, that heart of a disciple to obey you, to to obey all that you've commanded us. And so, Lord, we ask for your help today, the help of your Holy Spirit, that you would send out your light and your truth this morning. That you would instruct our minds with your truth, and that you would incline our hearts to fear your name, to obey your truth. Lord, we are your people. We ask for your blessing this morning as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. You've waited for this day for about four years now. The end of Matthew's gospel today. We're going to finish up our preaching through Matthew's gospel. We've taken several detours along the way. Um, that whole COVID thing happened right in the middle of our exposition of Matthew. But today we come to the end. And at this point, just, just by way of reminder, our Lord Jesus has been crucified for sinners. And then Matthew tells us that on the third day, Jesus was triumphantly resurrected from the dead. And at this point, the readers of the Gospels are left with this question, what next? How do we, how do we, how, how can we possibly respond to such glorious news, world-changing news of the resurrection of, of jesus christ what next how do we live in light of these realities and our text this morning is going to answer that question let's read it together matthew 28 beginning in verse 16 to the end of the gospel now the eleven disciples went to galilee to the mountain to which jesus had directed them teaching them to observe all that i've commanded you and behold i am with you always to the end of the age this is god's word to grace community church this morning now we've got a lot to cover today so we're going to dive right in notice that matthew starts in verse 16 with this reminder that we are now down to 11. Not 12, it was 12, now it's 11. That's a reference to Judas the traitor who has fallen away from the Lord Jesus. Now the 11 that are left, they make a journey from Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. and They make a journey to Galilee. And this is exactly what the angel told the women outside the tomb, of the Lord Jesus, the empty tomb, that Jesus would appear to his apostles in Galilee. So they make this trek, and upon the appearance of Jesus, at this point they become eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and verse 17 tells us that in this moment some of them doubted. Which almost certainly means that when they saw the, the, the one that they saw die now raised from the dead Some of the eleven were asking is this really him? Is this really Jesus? Can this really be true that he just conquered death? That he died? They put He was dead, dead, dead. They put him in a tomb, three days he was dead And now he's raised from the dead. Could this really be true? Some doubt in verse 17. But then verse 17 is also indisputable evidence. I mentioned this last week that Jesus Christ is the object of worship in the New Testament. When they saw him, what did they do? They worshipped him. They didn't just respect him or admire their master. They worshiped the Lord Jesus. And that's exactly who Jesus is. He's Lord. You don't merely respect him. When you see him rightly, you bow down and you worship him as God incarnate. He is a man, but he's not merely a man. And the eleven now know it. The one who taught them. On the streets of Galilee, now has conquered death, and they behold deity in bodily form, fully God and fully man, with face in the dirt, they worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the early church, in response to heresy about Jesus, confessed this doctrine of the two natures of Christ, fully God, fully man, and they confess this with tremendous clarity. In 451 A.D. at the Council of Chalcedon, listen to this. We read: We then, following the holy fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, perfect in Godhead. And also perfect in manhood Truly God and truly man Consubstantial with the Father according to Godhead And consubstantial with us according to the manhood Begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead And in these latter days for us and for our salvation Born of the Virgin Mary according to his manhood one and the same Christ to be acknowledged in two natures, each nature being preserved and concurring in one person, not divided into two persons, but one and the same son, the only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what do you do with the Christ like that? Fully god fully man the modern paraphrase of that would be 100% God 100% man and yet one glorious person what do you do when you stand in the presence of a Christ like that you bow your face to the ground and you worship him that's who stood before them on the mountain as he appeared before he gives them this great commission is the God man Our Lord Jesus Christ Verse 18 Jesus gives us One of the most important Christological statements In the entire New Testament By that I mean One of the most important things About revealing to us Who is Jesus Is given to us in verse 18 In these words ready? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is what Jesus says about himself. Now remember, this is the man from Galilee. This is the carpenter's son, and yet he confesses to his disciples, preserved for us in Holy Scripture. That he is the universal sovereign king and Lord, not only on earth, but also in heaven. And notice the word all. Jesus says all authority, meaning every single ounce. meaning there is no authority in all the created realm that doesn't properly belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. All authority In heaven and on earth belongs to me. Jesus said it has been given to me. Now this is one of the most important things for you to know about Jesus. It's his authority. Okay? There's lots of insufficient versions of who Jesus is. History channel Jesus flying all around us. And yet, one of the most important things you can know about the biblical Christ is all authority is his every good. In other words, Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord in every way. And listen, he's not king like human kings are kings. Earthly rulers are always the obey a higher authority namely God himself their authority is restricted and limited By Jesus, Jesus has limitless authority unlimited authority and not only on earth but also in heaven listen think, think, think of not only does Jesus have the right to command you bow down and worship me as your king He has the right to command all the angels of heaven to bow down and worship him as king. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to the man, Christ Jesus. He is the king. Now, one of the difficulties with that phrase in verse 18 is working through this, this confession with these questions in the background and the question sounds something like this wait a second wait a second if jesus is god he already has authority what do you mean all authority is now given to me and wait a second if jesus is god who gave him the authority like how in the world do, do these things work and i want to give you a twofold answer to that question one i want to point you back to the two natures of jesus that we just discussed and second i want to point you into the context of the resurrection in matthew 28. first the two natures of christ it is only through this framework of Two natures, one person. Two natures, one Christ. That we understand this phrase and other phrases like it in the New Testament. In other words, we could ask that same question of other verses in the New Testament. How can it be said that Jesus grew in wisdom? chapter 2. How can it be said that Jesus learned obedience? That's Hebrews chapter 5. How can it be said that Jesus does not know the hour of his return? How can these things be said about Jesus Christ? Now, of course, of course, the eternal son can never be said to grow in wisdom, to learn obedience. Or to receive authority but in the coming of Jesus in the coming of Jesus Christ we have the eternal son becoming the incarnate son of God and in this incarnate state we have one Christ with two natures fully God yes but also fully man And in this incarnate stage, Jesus, the incarnate son of God, is said to develop. He's said to pass through stages of human development, like growing in wisdom, like learning obedience. These things happen to Christ according to his human nature because he is the God man. In this sense, we can proclaim that yes in this moment jesus the god man enters into this new state he receives something from his father namely authority and then we bring in the context of matthew 28 is the resurrection of jesus christ And don't forget this. Note this well. It is in the context of Jesus conquering death that Jesus says all authority is now given to me in heaven and on earth. I want you to think about this. Last week, Ryan uh, proclaimed the resurrection. He taught us that Jesus was raised from the dead. And he pointed out to us all the evidence in the New Testament that we have to confirm for us that Jesus was raised from the dead. But this phrase is different in verse 18. It doesn't tell us that Jesus was raised, it's an explanation of what it means now that Jesus is raised. It explains the resurrection to us. In other words, it is by means of the resurrection that the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, has now received universal dominion. In other words, when was that given to him? And the context of Matthew 28 says when he was raised from the dead. In other words, verse 18 is a theological explanation of the resurrection. It defines for us what happens When Jesus comes out of the tomb. Verse 18 explains that when Jesus left the tomb. The God man entered a glorified state. Never to return to his state of humiliation. Remember how many times we've talked about this. That in his his incarnate state he came and he was. His glory was veiled, but it's veiled no longer. And he's no longer in that state of lowly humiliation when he comes out of the tomb. He is fully displayed, fully manifested to be the king of the whole universe. Think of other verses in the New Testament that comment back on this moment. Philippians chapter 2 says that in this moment of resurrection God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name That every knee would now bow to him He's no longer in this Lowly state he is now the exalted one Every knee bowing to Christ think of Romans chapter 1 tells us that in this moment of resurrection Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness First Corinthians 15 says it this way that in this moment of resurrection Jesus became the life giving spirit he entered into his glory his immortal everlasting glory the reward of his obedience the reward of his suffering. And so the resurrection was the enthronement and the exaltation of Jesus Christ as the Lord of heaven and earth. You could even say it this way, when Jesus came out of the tomb, creation met its glorified king. All authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus. Now, our passage this morning, the Great Commission, really clarifies for us to what end has Jesus received this authority. In other words, how will this authority be manifested? How will it be displayed? To what end will he use this authority? Look at that word, therefore, in verse 19. And that's our link between the confession and the confession. That Jesus makes about himself. All authority is now mine. And the mission that Jesus sends uh, his church into the nations. that That pivots on that word therefore. The authority that Jesus has. Is the ground upon which the church enters into. It's all nations mission and so the great commission tells us not only that jesus is king and lord in every way it also explains to us how this king is going to build and expand his kingdom he's going to he's going to build it to the ends of the earth he's going to expand it to all the nations and this is just another way of saying that jesus is going to do what adam failed to do he's going to fulfill the dominion mandate Genesis chapter 1 he's going to Subjugate everything he's going to Take dominion over every corner Of the creation he's the real King the true Adam he is God's Christ and he's going to Extend that reign to The end of the created World and just Like Adam was to accomplish This mission That he failed to do with the help of His bride the Lord Jesus Is going to extend his Rule through his church, the bride of Jesus Christ. This is the Great Commission. Now, some of you have heard this before that this commission involves four verbs in verses 19 through 20. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. Four verbs. And yet, one of the four. Is the main imperative in the Great Commission. In other words, there's one uh, That gets the central force of the command and the the mission that Jesus sends his church into the world to accomplish and the other three are adverbial participles that are related to grammatically to the main command But they're subordinate to the main command now some of this is getting into the grammatical weeds, but, it's important, but as important as the Great Commission is, I think this is worth us spending time to get exactly right. And I want to labor towards that end for just a few minutes. I remember uh, hearing a preacher uh, ask a room full of college students, this was years ago, to yell on the count of three which verb they thought was the central command in the great commission and on the count of three everybody in the room yells go and he immediately responds no okay um, you see the main verb in the great commission is not uh, go it's actually the command to make disciples this is the imperative this is the central thrust Of the commission of the resurrected Christ who holds all authority in his hands. This is what he sends us to the nations to do, to make disciples, okay? The other three participles, going, baptizing, and teaching are important, but subordinate to this command. And so the majority of our time this morning is going to be really drilling down on what that means to make disciples of all nations now there are a lot of theories about what it means to make disciples and i want to try to clear up some of this this morning and this is something that i believe that our church uh, especially needs to hear in other words if you're here this morning as a visitor i'm going to camp on some things that you might not understand Why is he he spending so much time on that? There's some things that I think we need to uh, set in order, uh, reform as a local church. I'm going to labor to that end. It is very common to understand the command to make disciples to mean training immature Christians. Usually through a set frequency of meetings and curriculum With the aim to bringing those immature Christians to mature Christians everybody with me. That's that's a common Way of understanding what it means when we hear that command to make disciples I'll say it again Training immature Christians, usually at a set time and with a set curriculum, with an aim for them being more mature Christians. Okay? And this is not a bad thing. Let me say that in front of you. It is a good thing for anybody to move from immaturity to maturity in Christ by any means that is helpful to them. Okay? Now, with that said, I want to give you five reasons. Why you should understand the command to make disciples as a conversion verb, not a Christian growth verb. As a conversion verb, not a Christian growth verb. Okay? Now I know this is different than some have heard for, for a long time. It's different than what I've said at different times in my life. So hear me out, jot these down, test these things, see if these things. Are so number one. Number one, why this should be understand, understood as conversion verb and not a helping Christians grow verb. Number one, the verb is used four times in the New Testament. Jot these references down. Matthew 13, 52, Matthew 27, 57, Matthew 28, 18, and Acts chapter 14. Verse 21, and I would argue in all four references, they refer to people being converted to Christ, not Christians growing stronger in their faith. And the one that is especially clear is Acts 14. So I want to ask you to turn there this morning. Acts 14, 21. Now, really simple but helpful question to ask When you're thinking about the Great Commission, and how do we respond to it? It's to ask this question. How did the apostles respond to it? In other words, if we can understand how they understood their mission and how they responded to the king's commission in the book of Acts, then we get some light into what we're supposed to be doing in this world. Look at Acts 14, beginning in verse 21. This is the first missionary journey where the gospel goes to the nations intentionally. And we read this. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Now think about how helpful a text like that is for us as we're pondering, Lord, what would you have us to do in this world? What does this great commission mean for us? That text actually gives us two grids to work in. Okay? That text tells us that uh, the Apostle Paul made many disciples, Okay, and then that same text tells us that he strengthened those disciples to continue in the faith. And those are the two gears that we're talking about this morning. The conversion verb, and then the Christian growth verb. Here's a couple of things we can learn from Acts 14. Number one, it tells us how the apostles made disciples. Let's read it again. When they had preached the gospel and made many disciples. Friends, disciples are made by preaching the gospel. If you don't remember anything else this morning, that's the thing I want you to take away and to consider and for it to land on all of us. How are disciples made? Disciples of Jesus Christ are made by preaching the gospel. When they had made many disciples, when they had preached the gospel and made many disciples. Disciples are made by preaching the gospel. You become a disciple by receiving the gospel with repentance and faith. Number two, it tells us that the work is not done after you make a disciple. In other words, it doesn't say they preach the gospel, they make disciples, boom, they're done. It tells us that those disciples will always need what? Strengthening. Encouragement to continue to the very end. In other words, one of the things that the apostle was engaged in was a finished thing, never to be repeated.
1: They were disciples.
0: The other thing that the apostle was engaged in is a repeated work until those disciples are raised from the dead. In other words,
1: in Acts 14, make disciples is the conversion
0: verb. Strengthen the disciples is the Christian growth verb. Disciples don't need to be discipled. Lost people need to be discipled. But disciples do need to be strengthened. Again, there's a reason why we're camping on the grammar of this. We want to get this exactly right. Number two, second reason why we should understand it this way is that it is confirmed. In the Great Commission itself, by the third verb, that word baptize. If you were to ask this question of the Great Commission, who should we baptize? What's the answer to that question? We should baptize, you got it, disciples. We should make disciples. And then what should we do? We should baptize them and, and, and we should baptize disciples and only disciples. And then what should we do? We should teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. In other words, becoming a disciple precedes baptism. Okay? And so we see that some of the relationship that the part- participles have to the imperative, the main word here is this temporal relationship. Okay? Um, uh, that our going to the nations precedes our na- making disciples of all nations. Get a disciple of the nations unless you go to the nations with the gospel. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And then our baptizing and teaching follow our disciple making. In other words, those who convert to Christ ought to be baptized. They ought to be marked as part of the church of Jesus. And in the context of that church, they ought to spend the rest of their life obeying Jesus' teaching. Number three, this view is confirmed by the parallel passages of the Great Commission. Matthew is not the only one to report this mandate that Jesus gives his church. Okay, uh, Mark has something to say about this. Luke has something to say about this. John, and also the first chapter of Acts, listen to this in Mark 16. After he appeared to the eleven. He rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation.
1: In other words, what does Mark tell
0: us that Jesus sent his church into the world to do? It was a mandate to preach the gospel to the nations. It turns out not only Mark, also Luke chapter 24 says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations again the church is sent to proclaim the name of jesus to all the nations of the earth and the simple reality is matthew is not reporting a different mandate than the mandate that mark is reporting or luke is reporting okay the mandate is the same to preach the gospel to the nations this is what it means To make disciples. Now the different wording can be explained in this way. Mark and Luke are viewing the Great Commissions through the lens of the means by which it will be accomplished. Preaching the gospel. While Matthew views the Great Commission through the lens of the intended result of that preaching. Making disciples. But the important thing for us to know is it's the exact same mission disciples are made by preaching the gospel number four this view is confirmed by the precursors to the great commission what i mean by that is this in the gospels jesus trained his apostles for this work before the great commission he sent them on many missions in the gospel like matthew chapter 10 where he prepared them for the ministry that he called them to do listen to how Mark describes uh, 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 Jesus' intention for his apostles. He says this, Mark 3, 14, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. And that's exactly what Jesus sends these twelve to do throughout the gospel. It's, the gospels is to preach the gospel of the kingdom. So the argument goes this way. They're not called to do something fundamentally different in the Great Commission than they were called to do in their training for the Great Commission. They're being sent to preach the gospel to the nations. Number five, last one, this is confirmed by the apostles' obedience to the Great Commission. What did they understand Jesus to be commanding them to do? How did they respond to this mandate again Mark 16 verse 19 so then the Lord Jesus after he had spoken to them was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God listen and they went out and preached everywhere and they went out and preached everywhere and that's the exact same thing we'll do if we understand this mandate rightly and what we're being sent by our king to do in this world is we'll go and preach the gospel everywhere. Okay. What are the implications of getting this wrong, this emphasis wrong? I'll mention five. Again, five. Number one. Getting it wrong can lead to a weak view of conversion very often you will hear it said, kind of tongue in cheek, our mandate is to make disciples, not converts. Jesus sent us to make disciples, not converts. So you're here said this way: our job is to make actual followers of Christ, not decisions. Or some have even said it this way: disciples are made, not born. Okay, not born now. This is important for us to understand that underneath statements like this, there's a two-stage approach uh, being presented to us for responding to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And this stuff grows right out of the two-stage easy believism of the 1950s that said that you could receive Jesus as your Savior at this point in time, and then fast forward, like five years, 10 years, 15 years later, you could receive Jesus as your Lord. That you can have two different responses, temporally disconnected to the Lordship of Christ. You could get saved, and then you could submit to Jesus as your King. Okay? In a similar way, this two-stage approach assumes that you can be a believer. And then some point later on down the road, then you can become disciple, okay? And what is assumed in statements like this is that when someone is converted to Christ, they don't actually begin to learn his teaching or follow Jesus as Lord or obey him as their king. That's underneath statements like this. Now, there's no doubt that disciples need to be taught for the rest of their life. That's true for every one of us in the But friends, there is something so decisive that happens in Christian conversion that the metaphors the Bible uses to describe it are new creation, absolutely new, old is gone, born again, new heart, spirit of God now indwelling this person. And so... This two-stage approach can lead to a weak view of what it means to convert to Jesus Christ. When somebody says that, we're not supposed to make uh, we're supposed to make disciples not converts. they're not talking about the same kind of conversion that I understand the New Testament to describe as regeneration becoming completely new through the work of the Spirit. Number two, it can lead to unhelpful categories within the church where the church is divided into those who have been discipled and those who have not been discipled. I've done this several times. Um, ask a typical room of Christians in our context, ask them this question Have you been discipled? Have you been discipled? The vast majority of those who are hearing you ask that question are hearing you ask this. You mean, has a more mature Christian met with me one-on-one over the course of six months at the coffee shop to take me through discipleship curriculum? Your typical hearer, that's exactly what they're thinking. Have you been discipled? And that's what comes into their mind. And because that hasn't happened, With the majority of Christians, your typical Christian in our context would respond to this question. Have you been discipled? No, nobody's ever done that to me, Friend, that's a problem. If you lean in to that same group and you were to ask a follow-up question and they say, no, I haven't been discipled. You were saying, so you are not a disciple of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the answer would completely flip and the typical response would be, no, no, that's not what I mean. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I just haven't been a disciple. And that confusion ought to show you uh, uh, the disconnect. Why, why that disconnect? Okay. And you begin to understand the problem. This kind of thinking, understanding and it wrongly, listen, it can convince you that you lack something that you don't lack, okay? and that's a dangerous thing for a Christian it can make you extremely passive as a Christian waiting for somebody to come along and do that thing that hasn't happened to you yet okay? and when we're seeing it rightly we're understanding Jesus is my King I am a follower of Jesus Christ
1: My role is not to
0: passively sit by until something happens to me. I need to actively get busy obeying my King, growing as a Christian, submitting to Jesus as my Lord. Number three, it can lead to an unhealthy emphasis on your personal ministry at the expense of the corporate ministry of the church. You see, the Great Commission is a command given to the whole church. Yes, you have a personal responsibility, but you can't obey the Great Commission by yourself. You can't obey the Great Commission by yourself. I hope you believe that. The Great Commission is a command to the church to preach the gospel, to gather believers in the local churches, to mark them off by baptism, And then to build up those local churches perpetually through the ministry of the word. There's a church shape, a corporate shape to the command that Jesus has given this church. But if I mainly understand making disciples as one-on-one meetings where discipleship curriculum is delivered to younger Christians, think of how easy it is to individualize this mandate. Think of how easy it is to do that. And trust me, Americans are really good at individualizing stuff. If I mainly understand the mandate to be my individual personal one-on-one meetings with other people, listen to this, you don't even need a church for that. Is that a problem for you? Like you don't even need the church to do that. And sometimes you hear it even said this way, that it's really not a command to go. Uh, It's really as you're going in the sense that Jesus is just telling us wherever we happen to be to make disciples. Now, that's not a bad thing. I mean, preach Jesus wherever you are. But think about how weird this would be. Uh, Can you imagine the apostles sitting around talking to each other and saying, you know, Jesus never really commanded us to go. Jesus has said, as you're going, you know, just wherever you happen to be, you know, uh, make disciples as as you're going. Never mind the fact that John's version of the Great Commission, Jesus says this, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. They knew they were commanded to go. But one thing I've never heard anybody say, and this this just brings it just right to the fore, is the third verb just shows you. How the church is just wrapped all into the Great Commission. I've heard people say a lot over the years, as you're going to make disciples, I've never heard anybody say, as you're born, wherever you happen to be, baptize. Coffee shop, workplace, I mean you don't get people everywhere. To cry. In other words, you know you need the church for that. You know you do. You know that baptism marks off the church from the world. So an unhealthy emphasis can lead to an overemphasis of private ministry and a de-emphasis of the corporate ministry of the church. I'll say it this way. The Great Commission is not you and Jesus on a private mission. It's us and Jesus on a corporate mission. This is a mission given to the church. And it's not even just that you need a local church. Okay? Uh, The whole church is in view here. Why? Why? Because one church cannot disciple the nations. We partner with gospel preaching churches all over the world to accomplish this task. Why? Because this is a mega task. Can't do this on our own. We need the church. Number four. It can lead to an unhealthy emphasis on a type of ministry that is not commanded in the Bible while de-emphasizing the ordinary means of grace that are commanded in the bible and what i mean by that is this many of us have been helped by what is commonly referred to as disciple making that one-on-one training with an older believer but have you ever observed that's never commanded anywhere in the bible And have you ever observed the second step that we don't even have an example of that anywhere in the Bible? I mean, it's like, boom, boom. Not only is it not commanded, Jesus didn't do that. Paul didn't do that. None of the apostles did that. Friend, do you see it as problematic that that it's not found in the scripture, but it's the main thing that jumps in our mind when we think about, have you been disciples? That's a problem. What about all the means of grace, all the commands that had been given? And what about all the things the apostles did, by example, show us of how they made disciples? That needs to be the emphasis. Okay? It doesn't make the other things bad. It just makes them subordinate. They ought to be so subordinate to what is commanded. What is the ordinary means of grace? And I'll say it this way. You primarily grow as a christian through the corporate ministry of the church okay the gathering of the saints the preaching of the word the taking of the lord's supper praying with the saints okay this is how disciples are ordinarily strengthened this is why the bible commands us not to forsake what the fellowship, the gathering of the saints, the meeting of ourselves together. This is why the corporate gatherings of the church have promises attached to them that private meetings of Christians don't have those same promises attached to them because we're supposed to think about them as primary. The main way that Jesus builds up his church. Number five. A wrong understanding here can make us feel like we're obeying the commission even if we're never involved in international missions you see the reality is you can be busy with coffee shop meetings and still not evangelize and still not be involved with missions to the nations yet those are the things that are emphasized here preach the gospel to all the nations so ask yourself this historical question how did the church obey the great commission before the 1950s how was it done in other words how did the church obey the great commission before dawson tribe some of you know what i'm talking about some of you know how did the church obey the great commission before navigators how did the church obey the great commission before one-on-one meetings okay how is this done for two thousand years And the answer to that question is the church sent missionaries to the nations The church sent out missionaries to the nations and what did they do when they got there? They preached the gospel of the kingdom and what did they do when people believed it when they repented of their sins And they believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They marked disciples off with Baptism and then what did they do? Then they put those disciples in local Churches and they built them up strong in the Lord through the ministry Of the word and then they did it over And then they did it over And then they did it over again This is our mission Make disciples Of all Nations All nations meaning nowhere Is off limits meaning that the church of jesus christ has jurisdiction to preach the gospel in every corner of this world i mean we understand when we say things like closed country we understand what we mean when we say those things but from this perspective no country is closed we have jurisdiction to preach jesus there wherever our feet are standing in this world the king with all authority has sent out his church to preach the gospel to all nations. All nations meaning this is Christ's reward. This is Jesus' reward for his obedience, for his suffering. And and this is what the Father uh, uh, provokes the Son, ask me for this and I'll give it to you. Listen to what he says in Psalm chapter 2 verse 8. The Father to the Son ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your Possession Now we know that Jesus didn't forget to ask the father of that We see from Psalm 2 that the father is so willing to give that to his son And so what is the great commission? Discipling the nations is about the Holy Spirit working through the bride of Christ to bring the son What has been promised to him by his Father, that is glorious. That is glorious. A temple is being built for Jesus, an all nations temple, and all nations bride is being gathered for Jesus Christ. This is his possession promised to him by his Father. And all nations will be brought to Christ in the sense that we have assurance that a remnant from all the peoples of the earth will most certainly be made disciples of Jesus. Listen to, listen to how it ends in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Have you ever thought about it this way, that spending your life on obeying the great Commission is spending your life on something that ultimately it cannot fail? It cannot fail, it will not fail, why? Because the Father has promised the all-nation's bride to his Son. The Son has asked for this all-nation's possession, and the Spirit will most certainly gather in all the elect from every corner of the world. And not only is this the wisest way, to spend your life, it's the surest way. Ignoring it is the surest way to waste your life. This is a this is a mandate. I mean, this is a this is the one with all authority has given us marching orders. We know now what we're supposed to do in this world. We know how we're supposed to respond. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus is raised from the dead. What's next? Preach the gospel to the nations. We know what we're supposed to be doing. And it's not the great suggestion. This would be really great if you could find some time to add this to your life in some way that this would be important to you. This is a mandate. This is a command to the church of Jesus. It's a matter of obedience or disobedience. To not care about it is to disobey. To care about it and to love it is to obey Jesus Christ. This is our mandate. How How can we respond? There are several things that's morning I don't have time to go into here. We have this beautiful Trinitarian uh, 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 phrase here. I hope you, you He said, uh, in the name. That them in the name. And then he doesn't give us one, but three persons.
1: In other words, it's not in the names of the
0: Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's in the singular name. And then the three persons of the Godhead Father, Son, Holy Spirit Not only that, the man from Galilee just put himself Situated himself And his title right between The Father on the one hand And the Holy Spirit on the other Is a full-throated confession of the deity Of Christ, the Trinity uh, uh, Trinitarian salvation Beautiful things here But I want us to consider How can we respond to this mandate, I'll give us three ways. Number one, we can resolve to preach Christ. That's how, that's, that, that, that's how we can respond. In other words, if make disciples and preach the gospel is the emphasis of the Great Commission, then the proper response is, Lord Jesus, I want to preach the gospel. I want to preach Jesus Christ. Lord, help me to preach Jesus Christ all disciples are commanded to make others but they themselves are disciples of Jesus in other words we should view our evangelism as a duty as a charge from our king not something to fit in on the fringes of your life after you squeeze all the other time you have uh, into these lesser things it should be a priority for, for us to make Jesus known Mark never says it this way. If we profess to follow Jesus, but we are not calling others to follow Jesus, we are confused as to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Those things don't, don't line up. And everyone who's ever leaned in and engaged, in other words, what stops us here? What holds us back? one of the first responses to anyone who's ever engaged in evangelism knows what it is, it's fear. It's fear. This work, the God, don't get me wrong, the gospel is good news. It's not, you know, uh, bitter poison. It's good news. It's sweet to the soul, but the reality is this world is marked by hostility to Christ. In other words, that's a counter-cultural message. When we go out and we proclaim, Jesus is your King. He has all authority. Bow down and worship Him. Typically, generally, that's not a received message. There's blowback. It comes in all kinds of forms. All kinds of ways that fear holds us back, that want to be accepted by the end. We love to praise but we disappoint people, don't want the conflict, Whatever it is, so distracted by other things I don't care about schools, whatever it is. This is a matter of obedience or disobedience to our king. So what should we do? Well, one of the things that Jesus promised his church is that he would give us power in the form of the Holy Spirit. And one of the ends to which we have been empowered by the third person of the Trinity is you betcha to preach Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the earth. We will receive power to be Jesus' witnesses. Now think about this. The gospel is such a supernatural message to proclaim that you can't even proclaim it how you're supposed to proclaim it without the power of the Holy Spirit. There's not a person in here that has enough natural boldness to draw from your bootstraps what you need to faithfully preach Jesus Christ. Every one of us are in the same boat. Introvert, extrovert, just throw all that stuff overboard. We all are in the boat that we need the Holy Spirit's power to proclaim Jesus Christ. And So we ought to ask for that. We ought to pray for that. We serve the God who became it died for our sins, defeated death, and who sits on the throne of the universe. Whom shall we fear? And what we need is for the Spirit of God to drive that truth deep into our souls. Lord, whom shall we fear? You're the king. You have all authority in heaven and on earth. So we should pray to be unhindered by fear in our evangelism. You are sent in the name of one who has all authority So do what? Go tell the world who their king is That's the mission that jesus has sent his church in the world to proclaim number two Let's resolve to send missionaries to the nations to preach the gospel To preach the gospel Now this, this argument is picked up in Romans chapter 10. Uh, how are they going to hear unless someone is what? Unless someone preaches. And how is someone going to preach unless someone is what? Sent. Okay? And so the Great Commission assumes that there will be a steady stream in every generation of goers and senders. Rope holders and those who go down into the well and this must be the work of the church in every generation this is how jesus's kingdom will expand to the ends of the earth this is how it's always expanded this is this is the plan okay we the church of jesus christ sends missionaries to the nations to preach the gospel of the kingdom and i'll mention this our priority should be sending missionaries to places that do not have Gospel preaching churches You say well, that makes so much sense to me. Okay, let me sharpen it some. song. Okay Nothing wrong with planting churches 20 minutes away Nothing wrong with that, but ask yourself this question. How many churches are doing how many churches are doing the Man will swell up, you know, and, and, and heave off and go 50 here, 20 minutes away, 50 here, 20 minutes away, 50 here, 20 minutes away. And then ask yourself another question. How few churches are sending teams to plant churches 10,000 miles away? How few? I mean, think about this. Think about all the things in our context that fall under the category of missions And think about how much resources and energy and bodies are thrown at the main thing Okay, And that's the disparity that I want to highlight And this means we need focus and discipline as a local church To set aside even good things Okay that could potentially distract us from doing the main thing. We've talked about this for years in our elder meetings at Grace Community Church. How do we keep the tip of the spear being missionaries to the nations, church planning teams to the nations, and then the other things we do subordinate, but that this is so central that it's clear that this is what this is our mission's focus. Okay, how do we do that? That takes discipline. Intentionality. We have prayed towards that end. Number three.
1: Let's send missionaries
0: to the nations to plant churches. Okay, and I, I, I split these off and not only to preach the gospel, but to plant churches. This is highlighting that church shape to the Great Commission. Missionary teams should be church planning teams. Okay. With qualified Uh, with, with, with elder qualified leaders. In other words, you should not think about missions being something fundamentally different than leading churches. The only difference is the proximity of where it's happening, okay? The mission is the same. Missionary teams should be church planting teams. Some of the worst ecclesiology that you will ever find anywhere in the world is on the mission field, Okay?
1: And we got way too
0: many missionaries that have been sent out with a general desire, a sincere desire to serve Jesus, but who do not have clear biblical strategy of what they're being sent out to do. Plant churches. Think of all the missionaries you know, think of all the parachurch activity. How many of those are planting churches? How many are walking away from that work 5, 10, 15 years later and the church of Jesus Christ Is now planted in that land that did not have the church of Jesus Christ. We got to recover that That missions is about planting churches This should be reflected in our financial support. It should be reflected in in who we send and how we send them This is what we should pray for At Grace Community Church, at our church, when we ask God to raise up missionaries, what are we asking God to do? We're asking God to raise up church planting teams. Men and women who love the gospel and love the church of Jesus Christ. Qualified leaders who know what they're being sent to do. I mean, think about that. If all you have is a love for Jesus and a desire to preach the gospel and you get to the place that doesn't happen, you start preaching and then people start actually responding. You're like, "Man, this is amazing! The gospel is the power of God to salvation." Now, what do I do? And the answer to that question is everything related to the Church of Jesus Christ. You baptize them. You mark them off from the world. You bring them into the church. You you set up the ordinary means of grace. You set up elders, biblical, sound doctrine in the local church. And this needs to be the strategy to all nations. To the end of the world. So we need to pray for this. When well, we pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers to be sent into the harvest, this is what we're praying for. Churches. Man, I hope you're encouraged by I hope you love this. Every time you think about it, of what God has done through this church. When well, we can look in, at our brother uh, and sister in Kumi, China, and in Puno, Peru. And Lord willing, uh, in Moldova. And you can see what? Man, the church is being planted there. God established the work of their hand. The church of Jesus is being planted in these places. We need to be praying towards that end. Last word here is just notice that the last word of the Great Commission is a promise instead of a command verse 20. jesus says behold i am with you always to the end of the age and this reminds us what kind of king jesus is it reminds us that our master is not a hard master he's not a pharaoh jesus doesn't demand bricks and deny straw who is jesus he issues our marching orders he's our king But not only that, he's with us to fulfill them. He's with us to carry them out. And he's with us all the days, he says. Always. Even to the end of the age. Now I'll point out again, this promise is plural. I will be with y'all. He will be with his church. This is not uh, a promise to hang on the the individual cowboy who's just him and Jesus, serving Jesus among the nations. It's a promise to the church. As we send out missionaries, as they proclaim the gospel to the nations, as they're marking off local churches, Jesus is with his church as we carry his name to all nations. Know that he promises to be with us always. Not just periodically, I'll check on you, how you're doing. Not just at the end of this really long, hard journey, I will be with you but he promises to be with us every step of the way always to the end of the age all all the days of our lives and so the one thing that we never have to fear as we respond to our king as we pray to the lord lord don't let me waste my life you know fiddling with the things of this world help me to make it count help me to serve you lord jesus we don't have to fear in this world as being alone. Jesus has not left his church alone. He is present with us by his Spirit all the days to the end of the age. And so, the very last word of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is our Emmanuel. He's God with us, He's not far away from us. He's our Emmanuel. He remains our Emmanuel every single day he's our Emmanuel he is with his church and unto all eternity God is with us in Jesus Christ through the end of the age let's pray this morning father we come and we ask Lord that you would sanctify us with your truth this morning Lord, we ask for hearts to receive your teaching. And Lord, we do ask, God, that you would help our minds to comprehend, to understand what you've called us to do in this world. Lord, I thank you for Ryan's prayer earlier, and we pray it again. God, we ask that you would make us an Antioch here, I'm reminded of how many times you've asked you to do that over the years. God, make us fruitful in this world. God, it's so easy to waste our life and waste our time and even as a church. God, we pray that the power of your spirit will come upon us. Lord, we confess that what you called us to do, we cannot do without your power. And so, Lord, we ask for a mighty stirring in our midst. You're the Lord of the harvest. You're the sovereign over the all-nation's mission. And, Lord, we worship you. You know how to send missionaries. You know how to raise them up. You know how to qualify them. You know how to equip them. You know how to support them. Lord, we ask that you would glorify your name here. And we pray the prayer of Moses again, Lord. Establish the work of our hands. Let your favor be upon us as a local church. Empty, of us, empty us of all pride, Lord, and boasting. We want none of that, God. We want you to be glorified among the nations. May they be glad, Lord, in Jesus Christ, all the peoples of the earth.